Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of You Didn't Need to Know This. Um, today, Sydney and I are with Jerry Zoltan. Is it Dr. Jerry? It is doctor, but he's <laughs> just fine. He is a professor of communication arts and sciences and integrative arts at Penn State Altoona, uh, who has taught there for 40 years, right? Almost. Almost? Getting there. Almost. Yeah. Well, the first question I want to start off with mm-hmm. is, so we, we know that you teach the stand-up, a stand-up comedy course and also a rock and roll roots, or like as you said, rock and roll roots uh, course. And what, what brought you into that? Is, was there something that brought you into both of those? Like, sure. Uh, you know, I grew up not too far from Altoona in a little town called McKeesport. Uh, and uh, we're talking about the 1960s. It was a very rich... Uh, time, uh, a lot was going on, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. Vietnam War, politics, etc. And uh, young people were listening to rock and roll, they were listening to comedy, and it was really helping us shape, you know, the identity of our generation. So I came into the university with that love of, of music and, uh, uh, and, and comedy and, and popular culture in general. And uh, I didn't set out to become a college professor. At Penn State, uh, I was actually in the writing program. I I had aspirations to be a writer. But we had a musical group that was getting kind of popular. And um, in fact, in 1969, we had a 45 RPM record, you remember those little discs? <laughs> yeah. That was mm-hmm. breaking into the charts, you know, and we thought we would have a career uh, in music, but the Vietnam War decimated the lineup. We all got drafted. Oh, uh, And it broke up the group just as things were getting interesting. So there was a professor I had at Penn State in the field of communication, arts, and sciences. And he said, you know, if you ever want to pursue an advanced degree, give me a call. And I, I ended up not going, I got rejected, amazingly. Uh, and so I was a free agent, and I took him up on it. And as I learned more about communication and how uh, communication works and all that, I began to look at music and comedy as examples of kinds of communication. Mm-hmm. I, I began to see music and uh, comedy as communication about culture, who we are. And the more I got into that, the more I began to see possibilities for these courses. So mm-hmm. uh, I wound up teaching the basic, uh, what they call CAS at Penn State, Spoken word communication, the art of communicating, that's one of the courses I teach. That's the foundational course. But then I created these two other courses um, that I thought, you know, really fit into that, that uh, rubric, if you will. And uh, I've been doing them ever since. You know? So that's how I got into it. It's just a love of music and, and culture, pop culture, and here I am. When you say about how comedy and music reflects kind of what society is like at that moment, I really see that, especially now, because I think a lot of comedians joke about the pandemic and the election and stuff going on. So because you look at the history of that, what do you think is the biggest difference between like comedy back then and now? Yeah, you know, the toughest thing about teaching a course on comedy is that things 
that people thought were funny yeah. 10 years ago uh, aren't funny anymore. You know, cause you, you need a context, you need the social context. Mm -hmm. Some comedians, you, you have to be very, like for example, political comedians, if you don't know what's going on in the world of politics, mm -hmm. it won't seem funny at all, you know? So that's one of the big challenges, you know? But um, uh, I guess the obvious change uh, happened probably in the late 1950s with a comedian named Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Most people think of Lenny as just a guy who used four-letter words, but it was more profound than that. Some people call it the big bang of comedy. He opened the door to making jokes about life and things that are real. Mm. And, the, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, take you into territory that some people are uncomfortable with. But he was calling out hypocrisy. He was um, uh, talking about you know the dark recesses of our minds publicly. Yeah, uh, the era prior to that, you know, everything was kind of innocent and surfacey. And and uh, I mean, we were talking about I Love Lucy, for example. Mm -hmm. In that era, you couldn't use the word pregnant on television. You know, you couldn't show a married couple in their bedroom. Uh, yeah. You think about what we see today, yeah. it, it seems uh, you know, quite amazing. So um, that would probably be the biggest shift. Mm -hmm. If I had to describe the whole arc, um, American stand-up comedy in its earliest days really was, uh, you know, there's no way to put it, it was fairly racist. It was about making fun of people because of their ethnic backgrounds. You know, there were, it was typical to hear anti-Catholic jokes, anti-Jewish jokes, anti-black jokes that made mm -hmm. people from these different ethnic backgrounds, it was a way of kind of diminishing them, you know. Um, and that went on for a long time. And then it began to shift during, during the war years. People need to be brought together. You know, division mm -hmm. isn't what we want. We want to come together. So comedy began to shift from making fun of ethnicity to making fun of things like American institutions, like marriage, yeah. or the classic routine. Uh, Mr. Neely will remember uh, Abbott and Costello doing who's on first. I know, uh, yeah. You know, a simple wordplay about baseball. Nobody gets hurt, and it's still funny, you know? So you got that going on for a while, um, and then uh, I like to call it neo-ethnic comedy, where representatives of these ethnic groups began doing jokes about their own, this is what we find funny about ourselves and we're going to share it with you, and it creates empathy and begins bringing people together. Um, I think of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the, the comedian... Uh, well, Bill Cosby, even though he's not good Steve these days, yeah. he yeah. did some brilliant things back then. It wasn't about the color of his skin. It was uh, mm -hmm. about what we all share, you know, in comedy. I don't know if you know what his breakout routine was. It was about Noah in yeah. his driveway, you know, and the voice of God starts speaking to him. <laughs> Noah, I want you to build an ark. What's an ark? You know, and it goes from there, yeah. you know, uh, into some pretty funny stuff. 
Uh, and then, of course, Lenny Bruce and, and all these other comedians, you know, observational comedy, uh, self-deprecating comedy. It goes on and on. Yeah, props. Some people... Yeah, Gallagher. Larry. Gallagher? Yeah. What's the Smashing weird... Smashing watermelons and such? Yeah. The weird carrot... Carrot top? Yeah. Carrot Is top? he the one that uses props or yeah. he... Yeah, yeah. He's another... Yeah, that's a whole other... Yeah, prop comedy. Yeah. Interestingly, that goes back to the earlier era, you know, because yeah. uh, slapstick comedy and early comedy had to be physical because they didn't have microphones, you know, it had to be visual. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what those guys do. They've updated it, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there a type of comedy you prefer or think that's funnier? Maybe, you know, slapstick isn't that funny compared to other jokes? Uh, good question. I, I really like observational comedians, mm. you know. Um, I've been very interested in what Dave Chappelle is doing these days. Um, I like people like Jim Gaffigan, who's just silly, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I love comedians so much that uh, even a bad comedian is somebody I'm willing to listen to, I suppose. I don't know, who, who are you listening to these days? Um, you like Tom Segura. I like Tom Segura, do you know who that? Say it again? Tom Segura. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know him well, but I know of him. I've seen his He does kind of a observational but also it's like sort of like mocking I, yeah. like crazy sort of like i don't know yeah mm -hmm. it's yeah he's pretty funny and then he's bill funny. burr um, bill burr yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. well you know these days you can access that stuff because everybody oh, has their yeah. hbo special mm -hmm. or whatever yeah uh, youtube and uh, back yeah. in those earlier days you know you had to go to a club or buy the record or something Mm -hmm. What were you going to say? No, I just said, you know, on YouTube, Netflix. YouTube, there's so uh, many... all of the above. There's so many yeah. ways to, to tap into that. My favorite might be Anthony Jeselnik, if you know who that no, is. No, I don't. Oh, he's really funny. He's the deadpan guy. He's the guy. deadpan yeah. guy. You, you have to email me that name. I have to check him out. Yeah. He's, he's his own character, almost. Yeah, he's, he's just like a character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing about comedians. They... they uh, Woody Allen. Everybody's uh, got a dark spot on these days. But Woody Allen said something I thought was really true, which is that we don't laugh at jokes, we laugh at the character. A lot yeah. of people don't realize that uh, the comedians they see on stage have created a persona, a character that they play on stage. Mm. They're not often the same person off stage. Uh, they can be actually very withdrawn and, and, uh, and, uh, and quiet. Yeah. But they get out there and they've got this character that they created and they play it. So, um, you know, I think there's some truth to that. You know how you start laughing the minute your favorite comedian is announced? You're like already chuckling. It's a very interesting psychological relationship we have with, with comedy, for sure. And for me, it's odd to see a comedian be the same person that they are on stage and off because if you see Bill Burr and um, Rodney Dangerfield when they perform <laughs> and then they go to an interview they they keep they keep telling jokes and it's yeah. just kind of yeah. to me that's a little odd because I'm like okay be yourself because you don't really get to see that it seems right. and maybe they are but it does seem like they are still the character that they are on stage yeah. that's what I've noticed oh, yeah. Bill Burr's really uh, I'm trying to think of his name, the uh, incredibly vile comedian. Oh, <laughs> There's a lot of them. Uh, but uh, a Andrew Dice Clay, oh. who was such a misogynist, and he uh, broke down on stage. He was saying to people, 
that character is not who I am. That's a uh. character that I play, and you're all getting angry with that character, but thinking it's me. Mm. Um, Lenny Bruce had an interesting thing with that too. He would do his act, he, he said. He actually put this into his routine. He would do his act, there'd be a couple of uh, police in the back, mm -hmm. and they'd be writing down what they heard Lenny say. And then he'd be dragged into court, and the judge wouldn't let him do his act. He'd have the police officer do the act. And Lenny said, they would do my act badly, and I would have to go to jail. All they oh. heard were the bad <laughs> words, and you know. Yeah. And uh, to that end, in my comedy course, the last mm. thing we do, um, everybody has to do, I, the way I do it now is three jokes. I actually bring in a microphone, we invite friends. Everybody has to stand behind the microphone and try to make other people laugh so they can sense how hard that yeah. is. And some of the students will take one of their favorite comedians and say, I'm gonna do my favorite comedian's bit and you know, we all just sort of staring because it isn't funny. It, it, you then realize mm -hmm. how that person, as the medium for that material, is a huge part of what makes us laugh. Yeah. Just saying the words doesn't always work. Yeah. And if they try to do it like them too, then it's just you're just imitating them, and it's still I don't think it would be the same. Right. If you went up and tried to. Do like Tom Eddie Segura. Murphy or yeah, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I don't think any of us. Yeah, we'd it's be. Hard. Oh goodness. It's yeah. And you said that you did a little bit yeah. of stand-up comedy. I, I I spent yeah the first six months were were very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, you you know and we what we did was uh, four of us teamed up, and we arranged a room uh, in, downstairs in a restaurant in State College. They would give us one night a week to do stand-up. And you know, people would come in, and you'd have to get up there and make them laugh. Yeah, and, uh, it, it was tough, and people broke down. People got angry. comedians. You know, these are the jokes. What's wrong with you? You know, oh, angry at the audience. <laughs> yeah, and they walk off. You know, uh, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. That must make you though appreciate stand-up comedy more exactly. after doing it. Exactly. You know, and uh, even the good ones. I, I've seen Jerry Seinfeld bomb. Oh, so you've seen him live then? Yeah, or, well, yeah. I've, I've uh, hung out with him. Wow. Oh, back, what? <laughs> back in, well, because we, you yeah. go to New York to get on stage if you want to be a comedian, uh, mm -hmm. and all the comedians are just hanging out. But even the famous ones, they have to break in their material, mm -hmm. and they'll show up unannounced at a club. Or they'll just show up and look to see what's going on. But they'll show up unannounced and they'll try out the material because it's, it's a matter of the economy of words and getting, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to try it out. And they don't want to do that, you know, at a big paid event or on a television broadcast. Mm -hmm. It's like an off-Broadway thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you go to these comedy clubs. I mean, I, I, I sat next to Robin Williams for a time. Wow. Well, and I, I got off, I thought I was being funny. He had a movie out that had not been doing very well. And I, oh. I just turned to him and said, I'm sorry that I haven't seen your new film, but can I just give you the $3, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he did not find that funny. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's very funny. Yeah. He's a very, very 
uh, inward, quiet guy, you know, nothing like the person he was mm -hmm. on stage. Um, I lived in San Francisco before Robin became famous, and I used to play music on the street to make money, and Robin worked, was working the block next to me, mm -hmm. and his act was just, uh, as people would come by, he would start imitating them and walking like them, and, <laughs> and it would draw a crowd, and he was great, you know? Yeah. And I would get his rejects, you know, they'd, they'd come by me, but it's a tough row. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just shocked by how many famous people you you know, <laughs> yeah. and you. We were talking earlier about how you have two Grammys, um, right. which is mm -hmm. just the cool. Like I've never met a Grammy owner or winner <laughs> in my life and, <laughs> here in Altoona. Um, we were talking about you got the one for best uh, best soul soul gospel album of the year, and then one mm -hmm. for record sales for. Oh brother, where are the soundtrack of Oh brother, where art thou? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were we were talking about that, and we were very shocked to learn that you went on tour with them um, this right. was just a couple minutes ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, when the movie was being talked about. By the way, I want to make clear: I've intersected with a lot of famous people. They wouldn't know me from Adam today. Some I have gotten to know well. I have mm -hmm. some good friendships, uh, but um, when the movie idea was proposed by the Coen brothers, um, there was a lot of, uh, in, uh, I was working with a lot of people in Nashville at the time, and there was skepticism, you know. Uh, they came looking for musicians, and um, uh, I, don't th I don't think anybody in the business thought this movie would, you know, make any difference to anything. Really, yeah. Uh, but I had a hunch, I don't know. And T-Bone Burnett, who was the producer, actually, you know, worked with musicians. And he chose uh, the Fairfield Four, among others. Uh, Gillian Welch, you know Gillian at all? Uh, David Rawlings and Gillian Welch are major players in the film. Alison Krauss uh, was in the film. Um, these were all people I knew, uh, you know. I know with Gillian and David Rawlings, we I, at least one or two occasions when we sat around the living room just picking picking yeah. guitars and singing and then the next thing we know they're in this movie so the movie surprised everyone it became like a huge hit and mm -hmm. um i still uh, it was such it was such a hit that they realized there was money to be made in taking the whole entourage of musicians on tour the old brother tour it was and um I remember we were in, at Carnegie Hall in New York, and it was intermission, and a group of, of high school kids were coming down the hall. They were all singing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And I heard, what was that? I never heard that song before. That's a great song. And it made me realize that some of these songs are, they've become iconic, you know? They've become embedded mm -hmm. in the culture. They were hearing it for the first time, and it, it, they loved it. Yeah. Uh, so that was a great tour. Um, I didn't do all the dates. I just did a few, you know. But uh, but it was uh, great fun. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Fairfield Four, one of the things that began happening is a lot of country and rock acts loved their acapella quartet sound and began hiring them to do backup vocals. And so that led to some real tours where I got to know people, uh, most notably uh, John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater oh, wow. Revival. We went on a tour with 
him and um, Elisle Lovett, who was dating Julia Roberts at the time. Oh. Uh, you know, and, uh, and there are others I'm just blanking out, but, you know, these were situations where we were traveling all over the country. Mm-hmm. How many tours have you been on? Many. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, um, you know, at times for an entire month, a different town every night, you know, nothing like uh, the artists who do it full time, but, mm-hmm. but often enough that I know the experience. There was always something magical about driving out in Nashville at sunup on the road to do these incredible tours, you know. It's, Sort of like a quintessential American experience, you know, mm-hmm. driving out of Nashville. Anyway. And so you go on tour and you teach, too? Is that... Well, I would do it mm-hmm. in the summertime. You know? Oh, during the Yeah, uh, the Penn State semester ends in, uh, at the end of April, and starting in May, oh, I was wow. free to go. Uh, but occasionally... A uh, long weekend, like sometimes I just do four or five days, and mm-hmm. some, rarely did I miss a class, but sometimes it was so incredible that I really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the heck with Mr. Neely, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm going out in the road here, you know, because mm-hmm. we're going to do something extraordinary. Yeah. Like traveling to London. Elvis Costello flew us to London. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're just dropping names. (laughs) And, uh, well, it's memorable to me. Mm -hmm. He wrote a song for them, for the Fairfield Four. And he didn't, you know what the bridge is in the song, you know? The little uh, new part that, Yeah. you know, he couldn't come up with a bridge, so he got Paul McCartney to write the bridge. Oh, my gosh. And we were in London in Elvis's studio, his personal studio. Uh, he was teaching them the song. We were figuring out the arrangement. I kept thinking, come on, McCartney, I hope he shows up, you know. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. Aww. Oh, he d- I've never met any of those guys, you know. The Beatles? Never met the Beatles, none of them, no. Never saw them in person. But... You- uh, Aren't you, um, I read on Wikipedia, the Beatles, you're also uh, in, I forget specifically, but it said the Beatles on there. Are you, you know a lot about the Beatles? Um, I've, yeah, I I have learned about them. Um, I got tapped to write uh, in two different books about aspects of the Beatles' career. I wrote Mm -hmm. uh, a lengthy chapter in one book about uh, the influence of the uh, classical avant-garde on the Beatles. Uh, And then I wrote another chapter on um, the role of uh, vinyl and sound recordings and trying to explain why people still pay attention to them Mm. all these years later, you know. So uh, I've explored those things, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, similarly with Bruce Springsteen, uh, Ken Womack, who is at Penn State Altoona, is a fanatic. He's made a whole career about writing about the Beatles. <laughs> but um, I was asked to produce a, a, a symposium, an academic symposium about Bruce Springsteen. And I thought, you know, I, I, I like Bruce Springsteen, yeah. but I'm not a fanatic about it. But I thought it would be a great way to learn about how to produce a conference. You know, and so I agreed to do it. We did it in Asbury Park, you know, and it included 
bringing in musical performers, Bruce, we had to have his permission, but he wouldn't come. He said it would feel too weird to go to an event about him and be there. But mm -hmm. it, it won Best Academic Conference of the Year. Wow. And two people from all over the world who wanted to come to Asbury Park to, to walk the streets where Bruce walked. And it led to three, two or three, well, three at least, other conferences. So, you know, you end up meeting more and more people. Uh, you know, uh, we did a Beatles conference here in Altoona some years ago where I wow. interviewed one of uh, the guys who worked uh, at the controls with the Beatles. That's as close as I've come, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, I've immersed myself in various aspects of the Beatles' career. Mm -hmm. yeah. And with Springsteen and different artists, so what genres do you, I know you like jazz, blues, right. rock and roll. Well, my real, I mean, uh, I do. I embrace all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, the less commercial, the better. Mm. The more gritty, the more real, the better. Uh, but it, it, of late, I have been focusing on sound recordings of the 20s and 30s of really important figures who mm. helped define what intrinsic American music is. Uh, gospel artists, mm -hmm. uh, blues artists, uh, string band and hillbilly singers. Uh, so I have a core collection at home of some of the rarest 78 RPM records in the world. Mm. In some cases, the only known copies here and there. Wow. Um, and to me, um, they're like doors into the past, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm immersed in mostly. You know? But I still enjoy a good garage band. I still listen yeah. to the, I, I listen to the Beatles in retrospect, I listen to a lot of people in retrospect thinking, I may not have liked them when they were popular, but I can see their brilliance and appreciate it mm -hmm. for what it is. So do you yeah. listen then to music that's being made now much? I do, but you know, every generation has to find its own voice. Yeah. And so some of the subject matter, I mean, every now and then I'll hear a rapper, hip hop artist that, that was pretty good, but a lot of times, uh, the content just doesn't resonate with my life at this point, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and nor should it, you know, because it's, it's the voice of a younger generation. What I don't do is reject it as not music. Mm -hmm. I respect all music because it comes, you know, the best stuff comes from a, a place of reality and it's important to people, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to pretend, you know, that I know who's who uh, these days. But I, I read Rolling Stones just to keep up. Mm -hmm. I watch, I read I, YouTube stuff. I, uh, I watch uh, the award shows just to see who's making the mm -hmm. most noise, you know. But you guys are going to tap into a lot more than I'm even aware of, and I'm not going to mm -hmm. know them, you know. But I think I, that's, so, that's so cool of you to do that because I think there's a lot of people that don't, if they hear the music now, they they, they do that. Off. They reject yeah. it. They don't yeah. like it. Even pe like people our age, it they might say, "Oh, I don't like the music now, but I like the music back then." Because we have access. I mean, with right. streaming, we can or access those. Opposite, like they do. They don't like old music. They only like yeah. Either way, a lot of people reject yeah. a certain just certain years of music. So yeah, I think that's well, great I, that you yeah. 
uh, it's funny in in the piece I wrote about the Beatles and how come they're still so popular. Mm. I had to make the point that yeah, they sound great, but they're they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They've got a, a Las Vegas show. You know, they've got a their own serious radio station. Mm. There were kids shows with Beatles soundtracks. You know, uh, they're really bringing keeping that seed alive. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think, but but yeah, I I do. I really do strive to keep an open mind mm-hmm. about it. Especially now, though, I think older music is much more popular. Or I say older, but Queen, because they they a lot of documentary movies came out. Or yeah, like Queen, Beatles, like you said, right. still very popular. Elton John, yeah. yeah, Fleetwood Mac, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. I was a Bob Dylan guy mm-hmm. because in '63, pop music was all about. Motown and, and vocal groups and and I couldn't do that. I didn't have the talent, I guess. And then Bob Dylan came along and I thought, oh, maybe I could do that. Of course, I was wrong about that too, because he's deceptively brilliant. You know? mm-hmm. uh, but that he was my first foray into performing. Mm. You know, uh, but you have to find your own identity ultimately as a musician. You can't get the the big success sounding like somebody else. you got to yeah. carve out your own way. As a musician, when you listen to songs, do you have a hard time listening because you're trying not to pick it apart? Or can you just enjoy it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I just kick back and enjoy it. It's funny mm-hmm. you should mention that because when, when our little band was trying to write original material in mm-hmm. the late 60s, we deliberately did not listen to what else was going on because oh. we were afraid it would influence yeah. what we were doing. We wanted to find somehow our own sound. So that's a good point mm-hmm. that you make. I was just thinking, because when I watch, because I want to get into filmmaking, so sometimes if I watch a movie, you know, you'll say I'm picky, but sometimes I cannot, I have trouble enjoying it because I'm just picking out little stuff. But that's also just... How that's I watch. Okay. You know, yeah. That's how it starts, you know. Uh, um, I'm working on a new film now. Uh, mm. And yesterday we all sat down and watched an old Martin Scorsese film dealing with the same subject matter to see what we could learn from it. Mm-hmm. What to do, what not to do, you know. Yeah. So I think that's totally legit. Mm-hmm. And you. I can't I can't believe all you do because you film and then you produce but and you also write. I do. Yeah, I'm about to embark on a book about uh, uh, one of the early black gospel groups that are still operating today, the Blind Boys of Alabama. Mm. Um, uh, and um, it's funny, a few years ago I approached them about doing a book and they didn't want to do it. Now they w- wanted a book done and they came to, mm-hmm. uh, I'm collaborating with a guy named Preston Lauterbach. So we are just now undertaking that. I also have a second edition of my book about another legendary uh, gospel group, the Dixie Hummingbirds, uh, is about to come out in a new edition. Mm-hmm. Um, most people know the Dixie Hummingbirds from uh, their collaboration with Paul Simon on a tune called Loves Me Like a Rock. Oh, yeah. You hear that everywhere. That was them, you know. And, but they've had an incredible career. 
both the blind boys and the Dixie Hummers from the 1920s, they get their start, and wow, they've managed yeah. to keep it going, you know, in one form or another till today. So yeah, yeah, I think these are stories that are uh, certainly important to tell, and they help us understand, you know, how uh, the roots of American pop music uh, evolved. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to write a book and yeah. do that research for it? Uh, what about that? Do say that again. How long does that take how you? Long does yeah, that how take long does that? Because I imagine that takes a, a good bit. It does. The uh, Dixie Hummingbirds book took six years to write. Wow. You know, uh, and you you know, as a filmmaker, you probably want to do this too. But you you want to immerse yourself in mm-hmm. the subject. Uh, you know, travel to where they did what they did and mm-hmm. uh, one of the most rewarding things I did with the Dixie Hummingbirds was I would go to uh, retirement homes and talk to you know people in their 80s and 90s who grew up remembering and getting their stories uh, you try to immerse yourself in it and the biggest thing about this sort of non-fiction writing mm-hmm. is the burden of getting it right yeah. you don't want to you know People are relying on you to get the story straight, you know. Mm -hmm. That's quite an awesome responsibility. So, um, yeah, it took six years. And then the one you're working, you said you're working on one now? The one we're working on now, I think it's going to go quicker because um, I'm working with somebody else, and he's fast, Uh, you know, he's quite a a guy. He... uh, He's been in the news this year because of a book he wrote. You may not know this figure in American blues, but Robert Johnson, the blues singer who sold his soul at the crossroads and is the stuff of legends. Um, We've always had this image of Robert Johnson as a dark figure, you know, with emotional intensity. Well, it turns out he had a half-sister who is now 90-something, and Preston, my collaborator, mm-hmm. did a book with her that got a tremendous, uh, tremendous reviews. And we find out that Robert Johnson was a pretty, pretty interesting guy, a great, yeah. a great big brother with a sense of humor. And, mm-hmm. You know, every, all these years people have been thinking of him as this intense, uh, you know, blues guy, but uh, he was all of these things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. Preston has a bit of a a reputation, uh, and um, and he works fast. We're going to work fast. We're going to try to do it within two years. Oh, wow. Maybe less. That's, yeah. It depends. Mm-hmm. But it'll be a real intensive effort. When did you start this one? I'm, uh, well, we've already done some preliminary stuff, but we're going to do a 10, two week, 10 to two-week road trip starting in July. And I'm, right now I'm setting up interviews uh, that we're going to do with survivors, survivors, uh, or just people in the know, mm-hmm. other writers, and, and all that. So we'll see how it goes. Sounds very interesting. Yes, mm-hmm. yes it, I hope. I'm also, I also am executive producing uh, what will be a PBS television documentary about ragtime music. Oh, wow. So that's also happening, two things at once. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I just I just have this passion to do stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think of it as work or anything. I just can't wait. Yeah, you're excited yeah, about it. I'm it doesn't seem like... It. It's not work. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. As I suspect you'll be when you become 
a filmmaker. Oh, I hope so. I know. I cannot wait. I'm, um, when I, because we're both seniors, so when I graduated, I'm taking uh, a year off before I, if I apply uh-huh. to film school to go around and film and do that kind of, do like a road trip thing. What uh, got you thinking about being a filmmaker? Well, I've always been, inter- my dad really, because, um, Growing up, he would always show me, like, Charlie Chaplin, and he really exposed me at a young age to all these different kind of films, and then I just, I don't even really know how, but from that, I just kind of got, okay, how does this happen? Like, how does a film become a film? So, yeah, I got into filmmaking, and... Have you made any? I've written stuff, but I haven't had the chance to really go out and film. So that's what I want to do with the year is to finally go out and do, you know, what I want. It's incredibly intoxicating. Do you have any ideas? Do you want to do fiction? Do you want to do... Oh, yes. I would definitely do... Documentary? Yeah. I would do fiction. I think I'm more... I have a sense of what um, I would want to write about and what I want to film. My dream would be to do... Both the writing and the directing, but... Yeah. And then, Caden, you want to do something. I want to do something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think... I, I don't know. I've always, um, you know, I've always considered the idea of possibly doing stand-up, but, you know... No kidding. Yeah, that's why yeah. I was so... That's why I was kind of interested in that. Um, and I don't know. I think I'd probably be pretty good at it. No, I'm no, probably not that. I think an entertainer... Of something I don't know. I, I, lo- I can see it. Yeah, you got a nice delivery. Yeah, <laughs> there you, you go. Voice. You got the right voice. Thank That's you. A big part of it. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they say it helps if you're a little ugly, but I can't see your face. <laughs> oh. <so. laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> because ugly think... people are desperate. You know? oh, I don't know. That's yeah, terrible. I'm pretty desperate. Terrible. <laughs> you do have a. You are. A, I don't want to say character because you are <laughs> your own person, but you do have. I think a unique personality. You did one time. He did stand up for me and my friends. Um, he did I, on the fly, right? You didn't like prepare like just, the jokes. I, did, I just went up and did it, and she thought it was pretty good. I thought it was funny. Yeah. I was filming it, but then I dropped the camera. <laughs> she dropped the camera. Like I dropped the, the filmmaker camera. she is. <laughs> I was laughing too hard. Maybe that's what happened, and I just yeah. dropped. I don't know why I dropped I, the camera. I remember you dropping it. I remember it being very funny. Yeah, I think I think being able to think on your feet is a big help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we used to do improvisatory exercises to develop material, mm-hmm. kind of like what they do on. They made a TV show out of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah, mm-hmm. we would do those kinds of exercises to generate comedy ideas, but then others, you know, just work on their own and and come up with stuff. Have you have you mm-hmm. got a joke that you've written that you think? Oh jeez! What was the funniest thing you think spot. you pulled off? I don't know. I, a lot of it I probably couldn't say on the school podcast. <laughs> um, I, I write it. I write some stuff down. No kidding. Sometimes. Oh wow! He's pulling out the notes out. Yeah, they're not. These are just kind of like sketches. Yeah. Um, Oh, this is funny. I thought it. I thought it was. <laughs> it's stupid. It's really stupid. He's like, it's like, oh, that man committed orson, and then they're like, wait, you mean arson? And then they're like, no. And then he's dressed up as Orson Welles, and I thought that was really funny. <laughs> I just like it's just like you know, like a sketch or whatever. It'd just be really funny. I just have a lot. I he's. Got, I can see it. I can see yeah. it. Now. Yeah. It's working. Exactly. And you do. It's um. He'll send these to me sometimes, and I go, oh, okay. I mean, it's a, some it of them, is so you. S- some of them are just weird. Um, mm-hmm. 
like, do you know the DJ Diplo? Yeah. I said, <laughs> I said, Diplo Matt's. And then it just <laughs> Diplo's <laughs> face on a mat. And it's dumb, <laughs> but it's funny. It's, oh. You get a good little tiny chuckle. I love the way you talk about that yeah. being funny. That's funny. Yeah, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I think is wow. funny. That's, see, that's where I, because, okay, yeah, that's where I think it's funny. That's, that, funny. that's where I think I'm funny. But I feel like you should have a lot of confidence now that he is I, saying. I do, yeah. have, I do have plenty. Yeah, you just have to get your, you know, put together ten minutes. Make, make it five. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you audition and hope for the best. Would you say that's the best way to get into stand-up, is to do the clubs and yeah. stuff like that? Well, you know, i got to rethink that, because uh, you guys are living in a different world than yeah. I was. That's how it was when I was coming up. Yeah. I still think that's a, a way to go. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you know, um, you just have to... The, the tough thing is... if to not let bombing throw you off your mark. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't laugh, okay? You just have to pause a beat uh, and then go to the next one until you, you know. But it, it could take uh, months of, of uh, doing this till you get really relaxed and feel mm-hmm. comfortable. Mm-hmm. It, it took me literally you know, six months before I started getting laughs with my stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. You do have to have, I think, just strength <laughs> to be able to go up there and do that you and just, take it. You just have yeah. to, yeah, and you will too, you know. Oh, geez. The, Hopefully I have In it. writing the first book I wrote, the scariest thing for me was that I heard I was going to get a review in the New York yeah. Times. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to tear it apart, and I'll never be able to face my friends and family again. Uh, as it turned out, they, they gave it a pretty good review. But you mm. just have to steal yourself to that. Yeah. Uh, as a filmmaker, you would, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and you're gonna have to work with people who are, who will uh, torture you because they're, uh, you know, often so self-consumed and difficult mm-hmm. actors and actresses. Yeah. You know? So yeah, you gotta just develop this strength, and it comes with time mm-hmm. and experience till you get comfortable in the saddle. Yeah, and what I think is when I, um, when you say about reviews and stuff, and I see how other filmmakers have reacted to bad reviews because I think yeah. and hopefully I can do this when I start but there is a difference between getting feedback and just getting a review that is hate mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people shut everything out so if it is what would you call that when it's just criticizing yeah. and um, a lot of people will say oh that's hate they don't understand Whatnot, but I think you do need to kind of look at the bad reviews. But notice, you got to know the difference between what is someone that's coming from a place of knowledge and they actually care right. about it, than just oh, this was dumb. Yeah, right. this like was dumb for no destroying reason. Destroying it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they didn't really understand. Yeah, because getting feedback is part of being in the entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, and you do have to develop a certain spine for it. Yeah. Or it'll drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like to say also we're the re- like we're very glad that you because as you can tell our our uh, career aspects are is something that you've kind of dabbled Funny, in yeah. Yeah, right. yeah and that's why we were like it was just shocking that you were willing to do this with us. I know when Mr. Neely gave us the contact and then yeah you know, I thought mm. it was important that, that mm. you guys. I think that one of the most helpful things is knowing that people who've done these things are just folks just like you. Yeah. 
you come know. from the same area almost, you know same, what I mean, remotely. Yeah, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, they'd like you to think maybe that they exist on a different plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's just folks, you know, and you just have to have the, the courage to go out and do it. And I thought it was important to, mm-hmm. um, to uh, meet you and encourage you. Yeah. You know, and you're voting. You're both very impressive, I have to tell you. Oh, really? Thank you. Anybody who knows I Love Lucy, uh, you know, at this point in time, (laughs) that's impressive. Mm -hmm. No, you both have a sense of curiosity. You have a sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I I miss in a lot of younger people that I meet. They don't seem to want to know much about the past or even know who's who. You you mentioned Buster Keaton. I'm like, really? Wow. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Orson Welles. uh, Yeah. The, these are uh, these are special properties, and uh, you're to be encouraged. I think you have to know about the past to appreciate it's, what yeah. people make now, especially. It's in your reach, is all I was going to say. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I was what gonna... was that? <laughs> um... Oh, I forget what I was going to say now. Uh, you're giving me a little head nod yeah, there. I, gonna, I didn't know what that I was. I what I was going to say. Do you have something to say? Is that like a little code? Who's your favorite comedian right now? Oh, man. Oh, jeez. Hard uh, question. Maybe, maybe Chappelle, just because of his interesting mm. backstory and the fact that he disappeared. And uh, it, There's a Penn Stater who is uh, a big part of who he is, Chappelle. Mm. Uh, a guy that I know uh, uh, named... Uh, Lathan, Stan Lathan, L-A-T-H-A-N. When uh, Chappelle was honored at the Kennedy, or with the Mark Twain Award, yeah, yeah, he actually singled out Stan Lathan. Stan is a Penn State grad, you know, and wow. went on to become uh, Chappelle's producer. So, uh, you know, just circumstance. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I love comedians, so I'm, I'm game, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Chappelle is trying to... Um, uh, use comedy in the most difficult way to get people to think and rethink and, mm-hmm. uh, and he's using to take on very delicate issues mm-hmm. um, you know and so I find that kind of fascinating yeah to uh, to watch mm-hmm. well we were talking about reviews and I think Chappelle was one that he that one I mentioned this before the, yeah. what was it a Netflix the special he did The Sticks and Stones I remember it got a lot of from critics it critics didn't like it so that. that's a person yeah. that but then audiences love it yeah. and that's a do you notice I mean this is both with stand up and music but a difference between how critics perceive stuff and how mm-hmm. audiences perceive sure. stuff what do you tend is there a side that you tend to well, I, I actually think what you said is a point well taken. I, I like critics who come at it with a history and, and, and a sense of trying to explain it and mm-hmm. why it worked or didn't work. Um, so, um, you know, I enjoy that part of it too. Uh, in my comedy courses, though, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of analysis. You know, I, I think uh, uh, Zora Neale Hurston said about gospel songs that if you analyze them too much, it's like pouring hot water on, on flowers, you know, <laughs> you don't want to destroy it. Yeah. Um, but I do like some of that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated with the, the technique of why something is funny. And critics, the best critics, you know, they can explore that intelligently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 
I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not. But. No, I just, I asked that on the fly. That was <laughs> what I just thought of. Because I always notice um, sometimes with movies, there'll be a completely different reaction between oh, yeah. um, critics and audiences. And sometimes I agree with the critics, and sometimes I agree with the audiences. Yeah. I kind of... Yeah. I don't think I'd ever let either critic or audience decide whether I like it or not. I can Yes, tell. but just who you agree with. So I was curious more. to go... Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you see it a lot with film, you know, where uh, you know, Rotten Tomatoes gives it like 80% or something, mm-hmm. and then you're going, I don't, I don't get it. Why? Yeah, yeah. you're a big... A big believer. No, I'm not a believer. Not as bad as you used to be, mm-hmm. but if we would go see something... This is earlier in my early days. I would, <laughs> in your early I'd days. I'd be like, that, I don't know if we should see that. Rotten Tomatoes... Yeah. <laughs> and go off go of like, that. I've done that. Yeah. I've done that. Uh-huh. You know, it's easy to do that. So. Yeah. But I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, let it happen, and I'll go and see, and I'll make up my mind mm-hmm. if it's working or not. With, um, this is random again, but with music, how do you, is everything you own records then? Do you do anything with Apple Music or Spotify or streaming? Um, I, all of the above. Um, mm. I, I'm working on a, uh, a record album. I finished it about two years ago with some pretty notable people whose names you may or may not know, Van Dyke Parks, who is well known for his, uh, he's sort of a rock and roll artist's artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, his most famous collaborations were with the Beach Boys, but mm-hmm. uh, he also influenced um, the making of the Sgt. Pepper album. Oh. Oh, wow. He's from McKeesport. We, grew, we were kids together. And I finished a project with him the upshot of it is uh, that I was talking to a company in Japan about releasing it, mm-hmm. and they want to release it in every form possible. Well, almost. They're not talking about eight-track cassettes or anything, but <laughs> they want vinyl, mm-hmm. they want streaming, they want, um, what am I leaving out, CDs, uh, because when you look at the world market, there are people buying all of those different delivery systems, you know. Yeah. Uh, I listen to, obviously, I, I love listening to vinyl, mm. uh, and the old Victrola records, you know, you got, you got to put on a record, put the needle on, and mm. uh, uh, there's a certain ritual to it. Um, but I also, uh, you know, I, I download tunes all the time. Mm. Um, I haven't used Spotify uh, for no good reason, uh, I'm not intimidated by it, I just... I guess a lot of the things I want to dig out aren't always available. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about collecting records is you find stuff that is, has never been reissued or digitized, you know, yeah. this and that. So uh, I'm probably a little technically uh, limited compared to mm-hmm. you guys because you, you've grown up with it, it's second nature. I've had to learn, you know, how to do yeah. these things that comes on. What do you do? You use Spotify or Pandora? Or? I, I use Spotify. You prefer I use Apple Spotify? Music. Yeah. I have iTunes, but I don't know what's going on. I have I have Apple Music. That's what I use. I Apple I music. could yeah, with iTunes I could use Spotify, but it's to me it's basically it's, the same thing. It comes down to buying yes. a, a track uh, or yeah. an album or whatever you want. Mm-hmm. I just I like. Spotify because you can just listen to whatever it's premium. Yeah, I still though I have a lot of CDs now. You do? Or yes, because my car well it had a cassette player in it, 
Yeah. Um, I have an older car, and uh, I didn't have many cassettes. I had a Hoagie Carmichael cassette, uh, and then my friends would get in the car, and I'm like, this is what we got, and I put it in and say, sorry. But so I got a CD player now, so I've been, and I, I like CDs. I think they're kind of underrated. Yeah, they're handy. Uh, yeah. Is your CD player built in, or did you get some sort of aftermarket? I had to get, yeah. We had to take the cassette player out of the thing and then uh, put in I, a CD I player. I bought a new car, and it doesn't have a CD player in it. Oh. Uh, they, didn't, they deliberately didn't tell me because they knew that I wouldn't buy the car. <laughs> I, I just assumed. Then so you might now have I have to, all yeah. these CDs. I make my own CDs. Mm. Oh. oh, okay, I see. I burn, you know, these rare recordings uh, and onto different themed CDs, mm-hmm. and I, I like to just shove it in and kick back, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, haven't been able to do that. Then you just have to, I think you have to get, although if there's, because mine at least had like a player in it, it was just switching it out, Yeah. but um, yeah, then yeah, that's got to yeah. be something else you get. I, that's why I asked you if you had an aftermarket product, because I've been looking, and they don't seem to make anything that... I have no. I don't know what it's called, but I know. I think I just got it at Best Buy. Huh. And it's just you put it in, but that's what I like CDs. But vinyls have been even new. To, uh, newer artists, they will when they sell their album, they'll have it like you said in those different forms, right. where they want it a vinyl, they want it right. CD. Yeah. And then and then obviously then you can get it through like Apple right. Music and stuff. Yeah, it's one one of the things that's been heartening to me are all the young artists. 20, 30-somethings who are, uh, they are curious about the music of the 20s and 30s and 40s, and they're listening to it and then writing new material that was influenced by these things. And uh, Mm. you see a lot of that out there. Jack White, for example, uh, you know, the White Stripes is, uh, he's channeling uh, what they call Delta Blues singers of the 1930s. Mm. Uh, You know, when you see him, Shouting it out, he's he's often channeling what he the energy that he got from listening to them and putting mm-hmm. it out in his own way. And there's so many young artists uh, that I, I meet who uh, who do this. And it's kind of cool, mm-hmm. very heartening. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting close to the time limit here. Um, okay. It's been almost an hour. Um, oh wow! Talking um, and. Also, thank. I just want to add, thank you so much again. I know for, we really. This has been this is, incredible. Because you know, as well, we, well, it's truly my my pleasure as, meeting as, you guys and mm. uh, and hearing your stories. I great. know, but for you to take time out of your, I mean, you've got so much to. It's what I do. I know, but there's so much of it. I know, <laughs> but so just, much of it. It's how I stay plugged in. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm gonna wrap it up here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you for listening. If you've been listening and. See you later. Thank you so much.